voice, vision, and leadership comes uh, to us as our as our um, as our tagline, and it's meaningful, and it's particularly meaningful when we listen to the next folks who are coming up. I'd like to welcome the the entire group of the Spiritual Care Addiction Treatment Professionals panel. Ladies and gentlemen, please come forward. Welcome. I'm just going to turn you loose. Enjoy. Thank you, everybody. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a true pleasure and an honor to be with you here this morning. My name is Eiklo Pjarnitofte, and I am one of the spiritual care counselors at the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, the Minnesota campus in Center City. I have been with Hazelden uh, Betty Ford for this, the pa past 13 years and doing work with substance use disorder for over 20. I now work with uh, the healthcare professional units at Hazelden. It gives me great pleasure to be here today and to open up the presentation from the group that you see here. I want to thank NWATP, Marvin and his team, for inviting us here today. And I want to especially thank Marvin for his empowering words uh, this morning and yesterday on the importance of spirituality and community. The backdrop to the work before this community here today, this 38th um, annual leadership conference, is as before the devastating disease of addiction. All of us in one way uh, or another, either personally or professionally, have been humbled by the power of addiction. Yet we are bold and brave people, empowered by the conviction that we need not ever give up or give in to the disease, need not ever stand alone. I believe that we do find ourselves at crossroads, and I love the call from NWATP, the voice, vision, and leadership. We, the group you see here before you, are ready to let our voice be heard to help shape the vision and take on leadership to make what you, the leaders of NWATP, are calling for. We boldly claim that renewed emphasis on spirituality in substance use disorder treatment is more important than ever. What the early pioneers of AA and later those providing treatment knew by intuition and honest wisdom is now being proven by science. We are looking at yet another important breakthrough by our friends in, in the world of medicine. This time it is the field of neuroscience. We are going to present to you today how and why spirituality is a component of best practices in addiction uh, care. In this group here today, Spiritual Care Addiction Treatment Professionals, is a self-monitored, independent association of spiritual care professionals actively working in treatment of substance use and other active disorders in the context of clinical multidisciplinary care. Let me present the group to you. We have Reverend James Wolf Yaxel, Spiritual and Wellness Director from Pavilion Treatment Center in North Carolina. We have Reverend Jack Abel, 
Director of Spiritual Care for Karen Treatment Centers in Pennsylvania. We have Reverend Meredith Graham uh, from Rose, Rosecrans Health Network in Illinois. Reverend Dr. Letha Harrington, Director of Spiritual Care from CEDAR. Okay. Okay. And then uh, Reverend Dan Thompson. Uh, yeah. He is the Director of Spiritual Care at Harper Hall Treatment Center. <laughs> okay. And Reverend Dr. Bill Starr. He's chaplain at Sundown M. Ranch in Washington. Now, let me talk to you and share with you our vision. Our association was formed in April 2014 as a collaboration of spiritual care leaders from the top addiction treatment centers in the nation. Our purpose is to establish consistent and reliable guidelines and standard practices for spiritual care and addiction programs and provide training opportunities that will build on the competent, uh, competence of spiritual care professionals. The ongoing plan is to formulate a professional network of spiritual care leaders actively working in the treatment of substance use and other addictive disorders and the context of clinical and multidisciplinary care. Our association is now an officially incorporated, is now officially incorporated. As a group, we have formed a definition of spirituality that we are proud to present to you. It was a remarkable, it was remarkable how united and strong we were forming this statement given our different backgrounds. What unites us is a deep desire to be useful and walk humbly as it's written in the 12th step of the 12 steps and 12 traditions. Spirituality, here it is people, spirituality is an open, transcendent and relational reality that involves connection with oneself, with others, the natural world and with a power greater than self. Spiritual practices are many and varied based in part on our different cultures, personalities, and leading styles. This adds in richness and diversity to a spirituality which brings openness, insight, serenity, and hope, as well as fostering acceptance and compassion for self and others that is both felt and lived out in daily life. Spiritual beliefs and practices enhance the connection between the self and a universal spiritual power beyond oneself, resulting in a sense of belonging, strength, purpose, direction, and love. A few things about the work that I do at the Hazelden Body Ford Center. Uh, of course, as you know, spiritual care has been integrated into the treatment at Hazelden Body Ford uh, ever since the beginning days. In 1965, the first full-time chaplain was hired and um, currently today we have five full-time positions and one on-call. All residential sites have spiritual care providers. We do lectures, we do groups, we do uh, individual consultations, and all treatment plans have spiritual care integrated into, uh, into them. So here's what we do, but I don't want to leave out the Dan Anderson Renewal Center. 
where people can come for renewal and education. And I do want to give a shout out to our Fred Holmquist, who's going to be speaking tomorrow. Make sure that you get to see him. Uh, that's, uh, that will be a treat. Now, people, we need to create space for this in our treatment centers. We need to create time, and we need to educate people and provide them with professional spiritual care. In the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, it says that meditation is our step into the sun. So that was, that's what we're going to hear about today, how to help people step into the sun. Finally, let me say this. It never ceases to amaze me when I return back to the wisdom in the text of early AA years how intuitive and innovative these people were. There is a timeless transformative power in the words of the, those texts. And now, without further ado, I give you Wolf Yoxel, and he is going to lead us into how, why this is important for us, why you all as providers and leaders need to pay attention to the science, neuroscience and spirituality. I give you uh, Wolf Yaxel. So I'm going to keep my um, laptop up here so that I don't spend all my time doing this because I don't think my CEO will afford the afternoon being um, getting chair massages all afternoon. So um, I'm the spiritual wellness director at Pavilion, and I'm not going to get into talking. I'm going to kind of tie a little bit of what we do. We have um, all of us have similar kind of work that we do within the field. Um, I guess one thing that I want to share is um, from the Pavilion model is that um, it's very we try to do a, a lot of experiential work around spirituality. And it's integrated into everything that we do, our lectures, our counselors, everything. It's, it's a separate department, but we've managed to integrate it into everything. Um, today I'm going to talk a little bit about, without trying to um, bore you, on the neural um, science of spirituality. So one of the things that came up for me, so first of all, i got to do a disclaimer. I am not a doctor. I'm not a neuroscientist. Okay, but one of the things that came up for me two, twofold, one was um, how come a 12-step model that is spiritually based, how come my own journey, which has been spiritually based, is having this great effect on a brain disease? Like what's going on up there? And so I started doing some research and I started doing some reading and I was figuring out how to, how to tie those two things together and what's, trying to make sense of it myself, and that's where this came out of. Um, I spent a lot of time um, in my early days, in my own recovery days, with the Native American um, people in this country and Native cultures in some other countries. And um, one of the things that this particular gentleman, Thomas Yellowtail, um, talked about, and one of the belief systems is that Anytime we have a disease of any kind, whether it's emotional or physical, it starts from our spirit first, or our soul, or whatever you got, whatever term you're comfortable with, and it manifests itself down. And that if you don't deal with the spiritual part, that um, the person can never truly heal, as you see in that statement. Think about relapse. 
I see all the time people coming from back into treatment and saying, you know, I went back out, I had treatment, and I came back and um, I relapsed. And what I felt like I didn't get was the spiritual part of the program. And so I think it's important to understand. And then we know that addiction is rooted in a physical, mental, and spiritual imbalance. You know, that's kind of the, the for, forte of recovery. And um, so we have to look at what's going on. All right, so we could spend, I actually did this lecture for three hours in South Carolina, so I'm going to try to keep it so that you're not totally falling asleep and I give my colleagues time to talk. Um, so I'm going, to I'm going to tie it in. So I'm going to do an overview of parts of the brain. So the cerebral cortex, we're going to take a look at like the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, and the occipital lobe of the brain, which is the outer part of the brain, for any of you who don't know about the brain, um, which is the outer part of the brain where our cognitive, it's the newer part of the brain. It's the part of the brain that gets us functioning and doing stuff every day that makes things work for us. Um, and then we'll get into talking about the primitive part of the brain a little bit. This does not match this. That's why you see me doing I'm, I'm not doing this. I did grow up Catholic, but I'm not doing this. Um, so, um, so we're going to look at those three sections. And first of all, I want to just talk about it from a normal standpoint and the addiction standpoint. So these, different part, these three parts of the brain... Um, have an effect on the attention, on our memory, on the cognitive process, how we cognitively are able to process information, our rational decision-making, our impulse control, and the understanding of potential consequences. Now, we all know from working in the field that um, things like attention, um, when we are working with our clients or patients, is kind of not there. Um, we know that from working in the field that um, a lot of our patients don't have very good memories. Um, we know the cognitive process is really um, not working well when they're in active addiction. Rational decision making, impulse control is huge. And then the understanding of potential consequences, um, and that goes out the door in active addiction. So the, the normal part of the brain, all these things start stop working. These parts of the brain, from a spiritual standpoint, first of all, places the concept of God or a higher power in a space that allows you to even experience that. And so in early recovery, or early treatment, we have people that say, well, I, I had a belief in God before, and now he's not showing up. Okay, I hear that all the time. Um, and so because that part of the brain is still um, not in recovery yet. It's still um, ill. It's still having to get better. It integrates your ideas of a higher power of God. So you have people that come in with all kinds of ideas. It's one of the difference, uh, I think, in, in spiritual care is that there's not one model. There's not one. And I know that in the big book it says God, but it also says um, a higher power to your, you know, to your understanding. And I think that's so important to understand that. Because that part of the brain, especially in active addiction, can't figure out what God or a higher power is at that point. De decreased activity in the frontal cortex through meditation and prayer. So I want to clarify those two things. So meditation is getting quiet. 
and most addicts aren't very good at that. Um, so I have my uh, patients spend a lot of time sitting under trees. <laughs> I'm kind of an outdoor kind of guy. Um, so the other thing is, is that what is prayer? That's having a conversation with your higher power. That's how I define it at Pavilion. Having a conversation with your higher power. So if your higher power happens to be a tree, go talk to it. You know, if your higher, pa- higher power happens to be God, go talk to it. It's having that conversation. This de- begins to dissolve the boundaries between that person and their concept of a higher power. It helps create logic in your evaluation of religious and spiritual beliefs because some people are very confused as the difference between I grew up with this, but it didn't work, or I was forced to go to church, and now I hate it. You know, we've all heard those stories. And so um, this part of the brain begins to do that, and through prayer and meditation, it starts to decrease the activity, getting things to calm down, starting to make the brain work better. Prayer and meditation also increases the sense of self starts to help the patient understand who they are in not just the context of their life, but also who they are in the context of their disease. They have to understand that. This is just a little um, graphic that just shows a couple of things, a baseline scan and a prayer scan. Um, It's showing the blood running to the frontal lobe um, a little bit more in the prayer scan and... um, the parietal lobe and the occipital lobe all are lit up a little more um, than the baseline. So what's happening is more blood. Just on, a, just from praying, you get more blood in your brain. Wow, that, um, you know, we could figure out how to do that to other parts of our body. That would be really good, right? So let's go to um, the thalamus. The thalamus is the part of the brain in which um, all of our sensory input is put into. So everything goes into the thalamus, gets kind of organized, and sent back out. And um, when this part of your brain is um, in the normal stage, it helps direct the information, the different parts of the lobe of the cortex that we were just talking about. helps send that information out there. Um, If this part of the brain is damaged, which happens in addiction, all sensory information cannot be processed and confusion results. So we have people in active addiction that are confused about who they are and what they're trying to do with their life and, you know, the typical stuff. And then um, it also, this is the part of the brain that helps stimulate the pleasure center. And in, in addiction, part of the reason that um, you know, is that there is the pleasure centers are are triggered, and that's part of it. Um, one of the things that I talk about is the um, the the first high. A lot of people experience the first high and then they chase it. And I talk about the idea of having a, a, a burning bush experience, and that that's great if you get one, but then a lot of people chase that afterwards, and so. Finding spirituality in the everyday, I think, is the important key. So if you practice spirituality, what happens to the thalamus part of your brain? Well, it starts to give an emotional concept of a higher power of God. So it starts, you start to feel something. It's like, I feel connected. You hear that all the time. I feel connected. Um, how, do I, how do I keep that connection going? You know, that's, a, that's kind of a far next step down the road. It gives a more holistic sense of the 
the world itself. And so it it stops you from it stops the people from getting this small, you know, I talk about your life is here and then as you get into active addiction, your life becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. All you have is your addiction. As you practice recovery and spirituality, your life starts to do this and the world becomes greater and more holistic in, in your mind. It also is the key organ that makes a concept of a higher power or God real. Things don't, you know, a higher power or God or whatever term you want to use doesn't work when you think, well, this is cool, but it's not real. And we hear that all the time, you know, I, I, because it's not tangible. We can't touch it, can't grab hold of it. So this is the um, this is the inside of the brain. This is the more um, primal part of the brain. This slide, which um, where did my slide go? <laughs> there we go. So this actually this this slide actually shows the um, the withdrawal, the the cycle of addiction that happens, the respond to the drug, the binge, the withdrawal, and all of this takes place in the center of the brain. It takes place in the, the primal part of the brain, the amygdala, the anterior cingulate, and the striatum. This is my favorite part of the brain. I just, I have a passion for amygdala. I think it's the name. Isn't that a great word? Amygdala. You know, I'm going to call my next kid that. Next... <laughs> Next lifetime. I have six, so that's next lifetime. So, so what happens in normal um, when the amygdala is working normally? So um, it affects our emotions and our memory. Good memories are the euphoric side of addiction. You know, the euphoria, the memories of um, that first high or that first good drunk or whatever they want to, you know, whatever term. The bad memories are the withdrawal. God, I'm going to do this again because I don't want to feel that again. So, um, and it's what I call where the addict lives in the amygdala. It's where the addict lives. When your amygdala is fired up in active addiction, and I like that term, fired up, the rest of the brain says, I'm out of here. Okay? And in active addiction, your amygdala is fired up. It's the fight-flight response of the brain. And that stays in that fight-flight response during active addiction continuously. It doesn't sort of settle down. So what, what are some tools to help with that? Well, in the, in the research and in spirituality, um, when the amygdala is overstimulated, it also creates this emotional response of a god or higher power sometimes as controlling, frightening, or uncaring. That's the fight-flight response. And so it can believe that if I, if I connect into some sort of higher power, whatever that looks like, um, I'm going to lose. I don't have control anymore. Any of you that are in the 12-step model know that that's the third step, having to let go and turning it over to higher power. People just hate that step. <laughs> you know, I don't want to let go of control. That's because their amygdala is all fired up still. Their fight-flight response is fired up. It also suppresses the frontal lobe's ability to logically think about a higher power. 
So the amygdala, when it's fired up, the frontal lobe is not working completely right. And part of that is, is that the information, the electrical impulse, and blood, not all the blood, obviously you would die, but some of the blood becomes less to the frontal lobe. One of the things that they found is that through prayer and meditation, by calming the amygdala, there's an increase of attention and blood to the frontal lobe. Now, if you remember from some slides back when I was talking about the frontal lobe and the whole frontal cortex uh, part of the brain, that was where all the cognitive stuff was coming in. And so through practices of prayer and meditation, the amygdala calms down, the frontal lobe starts to work again, and all those cognitive processes start to come back. So it's really important that, you know, this is a tool. So we have, you know, we have therapy and we have this, um, you know, the, all, all the different modalities that happen in recovery. But this is a huge tool in helping a person being able to get their mind and their brain to calm down to a point where they can start processing the information that's happening in lectures on the disease model itself. When you're in active addiction and your amygdala's all fired up and your frontal lobe's not working right, and you're sitting in a lecture on the neurobiology of addiction, and the doctors are talking about all that brain science stuff, I hear lots of patients come out and go, I haven't got a clue what he said. But after a certain period of time, after working and getting that amygdala down, they'll go back in and come back out and go, I got it. I connect. I can figure that connection out. The anterior cingulate, so remember I said I'm not a neuroscience or a doctor, so I have a whole nother section of this that talks about the different chemicals in the brain, like um, dopamine and serotonin and stuff. I had to go to my doctors and say, how do you say that word? <laughs> so um, so I've, learned, I've learned a lot about um, how, to, how to speak like a doctor, kind of, sort of. So... Um, the anterior cingulate is a place where we learn either um, we learn whether our decisions match our expectations or not. It's also when signals are missed, you don't learn from your mistakes. So when this part of the brain is in active addiction and it's not clicking, people aren't learning from their mistakes. So yeah, I got arrested. Last week, I got arrested a month ago. I'll probably get arrested tomorrow. <laughs> you know, they don't, we don't, they don't learn when that part of the brain is going, is active addiction. But what this research again has found that the spiritual practices allows a person, first of all, to experience a higher power is loving, supportive, and compassionate. So now I have somebody in my court before, I was trying to do everything and get through my addiction all by myself, and it wasn't working. Now, through my spiritual practices, I have this concept of a higher power God that is loving, supportive, and compassionate that's next to me. And guess what? The signals are working a little better, so I'm going to learn not to get arrested. I'm going to learn not to make those mistakes again. 
Through prayer and meditation, the anterior cingulate suppresses activity in the amygdala. This is part of the process that happens in how the amygdala begins to calm down, getting that blood flow to the frontal lobe, making things work. Striatum, pathway, reward pathway. Um, it's where the dopamine is regulated in the brain. It's part of the cognitive process, and it's where habits are formed in the brain. And all those things in active addiction, the reward pathway, the dopamine in the brain that is, is imbalanced, um, along with some other chemicals, obviously, like serotonin, melatonin, and neuroepinephrine. Ah, I did it. Uh, cognitive process. But this is where habits become formed. This is where pathways become formed in the brain. And so the pathway that's formed in the brain in active addiction is a solid pathway of what addiction feels like, the good feelings, even the withdrawal, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, when, when pathways are interesting, when... Um, when we're first little kids, little babies, and the first time our parents give us a spoon um, and food, the first reaction that we do is, ah, right? You know, we miss our mouth. After we've hit our mouth a bunch of times, we don't even think about it anymore, hopefully, until you're in active addiction, and then sometimes you miss your mouth. Um, but one of the things is, is that habits are formed, addiction, a pathway is formed. If you do something often enough, a pathway is formed. There's some research out there that says that um, you have to do something a hundred times or a hundred days in a row to get a new pathway. Now that's in that's in a whole nother section. It has nothing to do with addiction. That's a whole nother sort of realm of thinking and research and all that sort of stuff, which is really fascinating when you think about 90 and 90. We're creating a new pathway in the brain, and that's happening in this part of the brain. So what about spirituality? How is that formulating? What's going on up there? So meditation and spiritual contemplation. Now we're moving into a different... So before we're talking about prayer. We're talking about having a belief in a higher power. In the studies, they show that spiritual contemplation, contemplating is there a God or a higher power, contemplating spiritual values, contemplating what is my life all about and how am I connected, actually allows the um, um, striatum to inhibit activities in the um, amygdala. It starts to calm the amygdala down again. And so we're getting that fired up where the addict lives, calming down through spiritual practice. It allows for a feeling of safety in the presence of a higher power of God or anything that a person is contemplating. So just the fact that they're, they're contemplating that. So, you know, does sitting under a tree work? Yeah, if you give them something to go contemplate. I can't figure out a higher power. I don't know what God, whether God exists or not. Go sit under a tree and contemplate that. One of the things that we have at Pavilion, we have this beautiful labyrinth. And that's one of the, that's one of the purposes. When I have a, a patient I'm working with that can't connect... I tell them to go walk the labyrinth, to get their mind quiet. That's all part of meditation, too. There's a lot of studies about 
mindfulness meditation versus other forms of meditation, and I could do a whole hour on that um, because there's a lot of studies coming out on that. But what they find is that the spirituality and the meditation together is the most powerful tool in changing the neural functioning of the brain. It's not just one or the other. They're both valuable. They're more powerful when they're put together. Um, what part of meditation is also getting your brain quiet enough to hear your higher power. Your higher power is starting to talk to you and all you're doing is talking inside your own brain, then that's, that's part of the problem. Um, so it allows for feeling safety in the presence of a higher power, anything the person's contemplating. Creates positive emotional feelings. Wow, I feel good about waking up today. I feel good about recovery. It starts to change the way that they view. If you remember back, we were talking about how it gives a more holistic view of the world. So our, through practices of spirituality, the patient starts having this emotional feeling of life's more holistic. I'm more part of the world. I'm not alone in it. Meditation and spiritual contemplation also regulates the reward pathways. So it starts to bring in that system of reward and not from a, a really high place, but from a balanced place. It brings balance into the patient's life. So these are two different slides here. One is um, my brain on God. And um, you can see just a couple of increases again in the blood flow, um, more activity in the frontal lobe when the person's in prayer or, or focusing on God. Um, the thalamus is affected. It starts to change a little bit. Um, and the back, the, the back of the brain, the parietal cortex is pre-, pre uh, I didn't say that one right. <laughs> the back of the brain. <laughs> my, brain my brain quit working on that one. Um, but it shows this blood flow that's going on. Um, one of the things that I haven't talked about on here is that the thalamus actually, um, in long-term um, prayer and meditation, the thalamus actually begins to grow um, on one side. It changes shape. Um, what they also find is if you do brain studies of people that have trauma, and of course most people in active addiction have some level of trauma with it, that actually part of the thalamus shrinks. And so how do you get that part of the thalamus to start to expand again, to start to get better? Um, Long-term contemplation of a higher power, prayer meditation, those kinds of things show that to be. On the other side, it's looking at meditation practice. So you have this really busy brain going on in just before meditating, before getting calm. After meditation, you see there's not a whole lot of activity going on up there. So that starts to allow the person to get in touch with who they are, what they're all about, this concept of a holistic kind of part of the world, and um, get into a, a really good active recovery program. One of the things I found in the work that I've done um, 
over the years, along with my own journey, is that short-term therapy, all the different things that we have in our programs, all are great. Okay? And that works short-term. Almost everybody I come across, not everybody, but almost everybody I come across in recovery that has long-term recovery has some element of a spiritually based program in their recovery model of how they're living their life. Because that's the long term. And that's really what we're trying to do in our field. Is Yeah, the short term is to help them out, but the long term is we want, we want those long term outcomes. You know, we don't want to see them keep coming back. I'm going to stop. Get up, get up here. Okay, that. So, are you doing this one? Okay. So, I'm going to turn it back over and talk. And um, my colleague here is going to kind of tie together um, some other findings of um, why this all works, what actually happens in the cognitive part of the brain. So, thank you. Thank you, Walt. So a few things at the end here to sum up. And these findings that I'm presenting to you here, you can find in a great book called How God Changes Your Brain by uh, Andrew Newberg, who's a neuroscientist. And let's now view a few important research findings that will, um, if we are brave and bold, inform the ongoing change and innovation in addiction treatment. The first one here, every human brain assembles its perception of God or higher power in a uniquely different way, thus giving these different qualities of meaning and value. Now I'm going to make this practical. I've been sitting for, like I said, over 20 years in rooms with suffering alcoholics. They all are individuals, they require individual attention, and when it comes to helping them conceptualize a higher power, you really need to listen. One, no two people come to the same place. We, as spiritual care folks, folks, we sit and listen, we help people put this together according to their own understanding, and that requires time and attention and deep listening. Another finding here, spiritual practices, even when stripped of religious beliefs, enhance neurofunctioning neuro of the brain in ways that improve both physical and emotional health. So what I say to this as a practitioner in this field is get them started. Get them started. You have people in your centers, get them started, no matter what. It makes all the difference. Or as they say, the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Another finding, long-term contemplation of God or higher power and other spiritual values permanently changes the brain. In particular, those areas that control our moods shape our conscious notion of self and our sensory perception of the world. Now, to me, this is about hope. And 
when you're sitting opposite a suffering alcoholic or an addict, the best thing you can bring to the table is some hope. You can change, my friend. You do not have to live this way for the rest of your life. Your brain has started to change, and I have some things to teach you and tell you and bring to you that can help you uh, keep changing. Long-term recovery, recovery management, those are our goals, to keep people alive in the beginning but help them become free. One more here. Spiritual contemplation strengthens neurological circuits that generate peacefulness, social awareness, and compassion for others. Remember what they said. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. This is what this is about. Long-term contemplation and spiritual practice brings these promises to us. So spiritual practices help you find this freedom. We who are on the forefront of spiritual counseling boldly and unapologetically claim that substance use disorder treatment that wants to claim the important stamp of best practice has to include professional spiritual counseling based on the best available science. You, we, the NWATP community here today, we are in a unique position to make this happen. Again, we have a strong voice, a bold vision, and an empowered leadership. And now I now give you Jack Aples from Karen Treatment Center. So good morning, everybody. Uh, it is a tremendous privilege and exciting to be here, I know, for all of us at NAATP. Uh, I have the privilege of uh, speaking with you briefly twice uh, here um, at this section of our presentation to introduce the next segment that we're going to do and then uh, uh, to wrap us up. Um, I, I come with uh, passion and heart for... Uh, the work that we share, and I know that you do too, so you wouldn't be here, which is awesome. I do think that we, the seven of us, manifest an interesting phenomenon in front of you, and one that is both uh, great and in crisis. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Wolf and I started uh, doing some canvassing of treatment centers 
uh, to try and put together a team of people who work in spiritual care and addiction treatment. And, uh, and, and we represent a great flock of treatment centers here, but we also know that in many treatment centers, uh, because of uh, cost containment and uh, the influence of a lot of pressures in our industry, people who had spiritual care jobs are no longer employed or there, uh, there had never been much more than perhaps uh, 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 you know, a visiting person doing a yoga group or something like that. And so uh, we wanted to uh, stake the claim about evidence-based practice, which partly rests in neuroscience. I'm going to say one other thing about that. And we wanted to tell you that there are actually people who really do professional spiritual care, and that in the centers where it's present, there is a respect, integration, and appreciation and value for the spiritual care role that, uh, that we wanted to bring testimony to. So that if you are a provider or are connected with providers who are wondering what more could you bring, what would add the secret sauce, what would really make the difference, um, our uh, not very humble stance is that we, uh, we, we could help you out. Uh, not just, uh, this is an, and I'm not looking for a job, I'm saying, I'm looking for other people to have this kind of employment. And, uh, and, and uh, so I hope that you heard in our formulation of a common statement the idea of connection. Spirituality is connectedness, and uh, the board president talked about trust and clinical rapport. Those of you who are trained clinically know clinical rapport is the thing. Spirituality is connectedness. That's a very fundamental and important thing, and it's not flaky, fuzzy, or optional. If you don't have trust, if you don't have connection, you're not going to do well in treatment. I, uh, I, I, I just went through a horrible medical journey, and if I didn't trust and didn't like the person that was giving me chemotherapy, I should not go there. And, and we're experts in helping people foster and build connectedness. Um, we claim also a body of evidence that includes, for example, ourselves and our stories, the wisdom traditions of the ages, uh, which, which say that for thousands of years in every culture, uh, spiritual care practices have been manifest and help people in crisis, which spiritual addiction is a crisis. So there's social, and the very movement of the recovery traditions itself as evidence. And I hope that our industry doesn't forget that besides double-blind studies, if you can go to New York City and look at a meeting list and see thousands and thousands of meetings happening at every hour of the day and people going in and outside the door, that that's evidence we should take into account. I'm evidence, and you're evidence, and, uh, and I think that's a message that the spiritual care story wants to bring. So I'm excited and passionate to tell you that we're going to try and take a few minutes from each person and a provider, as Eglo with her team and <coughs> Wolf at Pavilion also have tried to say, spiritual care we think is being done in a relatively common way at different treatment centers with certain individual distinctives that are different places and making a difference. So that's what this next section is about. And I'm going to uh, ask a, a dear friend and colleague, Meredith Graham, to take us into Rosecrans in Illinois. All righty. Good morning, everybody. I'm Reverend Meredith Graham, and I've served as chaplain at Rosecrans for um, a little over three years now. Spirituality is one of the core values of Rosecrans, and it's a, an integral part of our multidimensional approach to addiction treatment. It's a part of it, and it's been a part of it for a while, and an integral part, an important piece of addiction treatment. 
This particular slide gives an overdue, overview of the different modalities of spiritual care services that I work with and provide at Rosecrans. We have spirituality groups, and in these groups, we help clients understand and experience and try to cultivate a spiritual awakening and also help them explore their spiritual journey and their spirituality. Clients are also able to have a one-on-one -on -one session with yours truly. That's top of the line at Rosecrans, if you haven't heard. And um, they're able... <laughs> Y'all didn't have to laugh that much. Uh, you know, they're able to talk more in-depthly about their personal concerns or spiritual issues that they didn't want to bring up in group. I also facilitate weekly chapel services, and our weekly chapel services always has a focus of one of the 12 steps, helping clients understand a more in-depth um, reasoning and application to the spiritual principles and spiritual themes of the 12 steps. Um, most of our clients, as you know, and, and Wolf mentioned on this before, they come to us with a lot of baggage, and a lot of that baggage is unresolved losses, is trauma, and what grief counselors have identified as complicated grief. And so I offer a couple of uh, grief and loss support groups on a weekly basis also for our clients, because now that they're not numbing the pain with drugs and alcohol, those emotions come to surface quickly, and while they're in treatment, we help them sort of manage it now, because they're surely going to have to manage it after their treatment stay. And um, I also provide a vicarious trauma group for our Florian program, which are those first responders who are in treatment. Okay? Uh, next slide. Spirituality is measurable. You know, if you haven't heard, you've heard it here today, and you can spread it around. We're all going to get T-shirts. Spirituality is measurable. This particular slide identifies and summarizes data results of a survey I created um, of, of spiritual care evaluation where clients are able to respond. How is spiritual care really impacting your recovery? You go straight to the horse's mouth with regard to this. And this survey is actually a combination of a Likert scale, multiple choice questions, and qualitative responses where we just get clients' feedback on the role of spirituality. And because spirituality is measurable, clients are demonstrating the impact of how it's happening and how it's working for them in their recovery and how it must continue to be an integral part of their addiction treatment and how they want it to be. Overwhelmingly, clients are saying um, spiritual values, because of the spiritual care as a part of this treatment, my spiritual values are positively increasing. Gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, you know, because when they come in here, they're knuckleheads and they're selfish and they're doing all of that. When they begin, you know, and that you see the brain is working, when they begin to participate in our services, it begins to change. And you see the changes in them and they recognize the change. Spiritual practices positively increase. Start praying and doing the meditation and journaling consistently. And also their belief in God or a higher power. Many of them report that it's totally changed. It's totally different for them. Even the folks who show up and they see that spirituality is a part of the program and they're not too enthused about that, they're resistant and skeptical, they end up wanting more than those who are excited because they begin to see the change and the trends and the results are supporting that. Spirituality, hands down, is a component of best practices because it provides and undergirds long-lasting recovery. Wolf talked about earlier how spiritual values and spiritual principles are a part and they improve physical health and mental health. 
So on so many different levels, spirituality is helping our clients. Spirituality, spiritual values, spiritual care has a direct connection to the 12 steps. Spiritual values, if you can see, if you can't see, 12 steps. Um, moral discipline, 4 and 4, 6, 8, and 9. Spiritual practices, 5, 7, oh, I forgot the other two, oh, and 11. And belief in God and higher power, the first three, you know, and 10 and 12. All, spirituality has a direct correlation with the 12 steps. So it undergirds the recovery process. It really supports lasting recovery. And the, the vision of Rosecrans is to offer lasting recovery. And I'm sure you share that vision at your different agencies also. You don't want to, you want them to keep coming, but you want them to have long-lasting recovery. And if you want that, spirituality could support that vision. The philosophy at Rosecrans is that spirituality is central to the recovery process. And if, we are, if we're going to continue to help our clients heal and live their lives and live quality lives, it must continue to be an integral part of addiction treatment. Thank you. So hello, I'm Lita Harrington, Spiritual Care Director at Cedar in, in Colorado. Spiritual care is an integral part of Cedar's overall treatment program that we are. Um, that from the spiritual assessment of patients and how that then informs their overall treatment plan, ongoing one-on-one -on -one appointments with patients, then groups, lectures, as well as a sundry gathering that's both for patients and for staff. Today I want to share with you three points of focus of our program. Number one, connecting patients with higher power or a God of their understanding that is real for them. Two, helping patients to reconnect with self. And three, to identify patient beliefs that are sure to lead to their relapse. So first of all, connecting patients with higher power or a God of their understanding, that in primary treatment, our patients are generally focused on the first three steps of the 12, that in dealing with step two, to come to, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, and then step three, turning our wills and our lives over to a God of our understanding. Most patients have no clue what to do with either of those steps. That even those who claim to believe in God are not usually able to identify how God is involved in their life or recovery. Others state that while they don't believe in that bearded dude up in the clouds, they're not sure what they do believe, that many patients um, have said that it's the spiritual piece that has been missing from their previous treatments, that they are eager to figure out, but they don't know how. Secondly, helping patients to reconnect with self that generally when we think of spirituality, we think just of connecting with higher power, something up here, whereas a critical piece of spiritual care is reconnecting with self. That through the course of addiction, most 
um, become not only numb to their feelings, but become numb to who they are, what they're about. And so as patients begin to get their feelings back, our program is really about encouraging patients to notice feelings, to pay attention to them, to begin to notice again what it is that they do value, what is it they are interested in or not, what is it that they start feeling a passion about, what is it that feeds them or drains them that if a person does not re-engage what has interest, meaning, value, passion for them, that life in recovery will surely be empty, hollow, lifeless, that they're sober, but what's the point? And thirdly, to identify patient beliefs that are sure to lead to relapse that what are the beliefs that patients are carrying that if they continue to hang on to those beliefs will make recovery virtually impossible. So for example, if a patient believes that underneath it all I'm a no good human being, or if a core belief of theirs is no matter how hard I try, I will never measure up, that I will never be good enough, or if a core belief is I should not ask for help, that now that I'm sober, I should be able to do this alone. Or finally, a belief that I prayed to God to take addiction away from me. God didn't take my addiction away from me, and so clearly there is no God or that God is just watching and waiting for me to blow it. So connecting patients with higher power or a God of their understanding to help patients reconnect with self, to help them in identifying some beliefs that are sure to lead to their relapse. These are three key areas that we then address throughout um, the remainder of their treatment. We recently added a Sunday gathering, though not mandatory. Most patients choose to come. It is honoring of wherever a person is on their faith or spiritual journey. This is an experiential gathering that through story, symbol, ritual, patients are actually able to experience a deeper connection with self, with higher power, and with a positive belief. Oops, and finally, um, according to patients, part of the power of the spiritual care program at CEDAR is patients being able to meet regularly with a chaplain to discuss issues that are introduced in a group setting to be able to talk specifically about what's resonating for them and where they are getting stuck spiritually. And certainly then to be able to work that through with, through the course of their treatment. Thank you. And next. Well, good morning. So I've heard that repetition is so important in recovery. Uh, 
So I'm just going to go ahead and ditch everything that I wrote down because they just said everything that I wrote down. It's kind of amazing considering that we don't know each other that well. We just met, what, two years ago in Chicago, and we're doing the same exact thing. I'm just sitting there thinking, wow, everything that they just said I've written down on my sheet of paper. Every single part. It's been said from someone who came to sobriety that my physical being has certainly gone through a transformation, but the major transformation has been spiritual. In a few minutes, I'm going to tell you about a geological phenomenon that happens in northern Michigan, just to keep your attention. So get ready, because the people who left are going to regret this. <clears throat> so you can talk to them afterwards. And then you're all going to come up to northern Michigan and see what this geological phenomenon is. So I am here today because of Pat McGinn, our clinical operations director. I wouldn't be here without him. Pat McGinn, I hope you talked to, has 30 years of leadership in this field, starting out in the Navy, where he served for 22 years, and he began in the addiction treatment center there in Pearl Harbor in USS JFK. And it was there that he began his, he experienced his spiritual awakening, and he embarked upon a very serious uh, scientific examination and understanding of addiction. And it's because of him that Harbor Hall uh, balances the scientific and clinical and spiritual understanding of our humanness. We say there that we are all spiritual people experiencing humanness. So we are going to examine thoroughly and exhaustively who we are as human. Why do we feel the way we feel? Why do we think the way we think? Why do we believe the way we believe? And how does that all result in how we behave? And why we do what we do out of all that stuff? And so I'm so grateful for Pat. Pat, raise your hand for the guy in the back of the camera because he wants to see who you are. There you go. Um, his philosophy clinically is a value on our team. Our team works together we value each other. We value each other's perspectives, understanding, observation. We set aside our egos and we increase our humility in our expertise, in our educational backgrounds, and we work together to find the solutions, the understanding of, of why we are the way we are. Am I going backwards? I'm going backwards. Green. Green. So I'm not going to go through this whole thing. You can see here, Pat actually wrote this slide, so I can't take credit for it. He put together this vehicle, the spiritual care director vehicle. It's, it's his uh, clinical rationale and belief of this vehicle that works on the team. The primary objective of what I do there, my clinical responsibilities, like I said, I would repeat everything that they already said so I won't do that. Since the 1970s, Harbor Hall has, has existed and has had a spiritual understanding that, that there is something deeper than just our mind. There is something more profound than just our physiological body. There is something else going on here when clients are talking about what else is there. There is something else going on. And so we investigate that. And we've been investigating that for 40-some years. And in the last five years... 
Pat and I have just recently, we've been having some really interesting discussions because our clients, we've increased our spiritual focus in, in, in this vehicle, in, the, in these different uh, responsibilities uh, on the, on, on the uh, treatment, master treatment plan. And we've been noticing something profound happening, and we're really curious about it. Pat's been doing this for mo more 90% of his life, and, and he's talking now about there's something else that's going on with our clients. There's a, a different glow. There's a different thing happening here. They're able to articulate and, and address what they're learning, and they're practicing it, and they're, and they're behaving in a new and different way, and it's very compelling. So we've been looking at that and talking about that on our team, which has been so enriching for us. My my part there is let's let's investigate and go deeper into why we are the way we are, to look into the purpose and the hope and, and the exhaustive layers that maybe we don't even want to investigate. We question absolutely everything. And we get it out on the table and we look at it, and together with our with the clients, we talk to each other. Why do you think or feel or believe the way you do? And that dives into some spiritual discussions that awakens new perspectives and thoughts. So now, for the geological perspective. Certainly here are things first that we address. Our behavior, the stigma, woundedness, identity, character, uh, and adopting to a new cultural pathway of recovery. But here's the geological phenomenon that I know you're all interested in. In northern Michigan, we have this stone that can only be found in northern Michigan, nowhere else in the entire world. When you're walking along the Little Traverse Bay, you can't find, on the, on the left here is a stone that you would see on the beach. It looks like mud. You know what it is? It's mud and bones. Geologists say it's just mud and bones. That's all it is. When it rains, and you're walking on the beach, there is a peculiar glow in this coral-like fossil substance, in this rock, and it glows. You can only find it when it rains. When you take that rock, if you apply water, if you apply some sandpaper, if you apply some oil, what happens is on the right. There is an incredible beauty that you see out of just this rock of mud and bones. Likewise, with our clients, this is what we're doing. We are taking a client who thinks he's just mud and bones, and we apply the water of our treatment. We apply a scrubbing. That is edgy. That is tough. But there's love in that, and there's care in that. We apply the oil, and all of a sudden, you see the client transform right before your eyes. This is why we do what we do. We believe in the beauty of the mud and bones that is still there. Thanks for your time. My name is Bill Starr. I'm the chaplain at the Sundown M Ranch, pretty much right in the middle of the state of Washington. We're a 160-bed residential treatment facility uh, there that's existed 
uh, since 1968. Uh, I've been at Sundown now for 17 years uh, and am blessed every day for the opportunity to be a part of the team of counselors, staff, uh, support staff, all the different people that are a part of our program at Sundown. Uh, one of the most influential people in my life at Sundown is our medical director, Dr. Fred Montgomery. Uh, Dr. Montgomery is one of the ASAM physicians, uh, part of the ASAM organization. Uh, and uh, one of the things most of you know about ASAM is that uh, they have uh, developed uh, criteria for uh, admission and treatment uh, planning and continuing care, that sort of thing, based on six dimensions. And I won't go through all of those six dimensions, but one of the things that has been a part of the program at Sundown way before I got there was the idea that there's really a seventh dimension, which is spirituality. That uh, as we assess people coming into treatment, as we begin to look at where we're placing them in treatment, as we're doing our, our treatment planning for them, as we're looking at how to work with them and moving them forward into the continuum of care, we include spirituality throughout that whole process. Uh, because we feel like if we are going to treat the whole person, we need to include spirituality because it's a part of who we are. Or to say it a different way, Blaise Pascal was famous for saying that every human being has a God-shaped vacuum or hole or void in their heart or in their soul. And that much of what people are doing in their active addiction, well, actually, people in general are trying to find what it's going to take to fill that hole, that vacuum. And uh, we fill that with a variety of different things, not just substances. It could be money, uh, desire for money, fame, popularity, success, all of those sorts of things. And certainly chemical dependency, uh, substance use disorder is one thing that people use to try to fill that void, that hole. Unfortunately, though, uh, what is used to fill that vacancy uh, ends up not only, well, it at first can satisfy the person to some extent, but eventually it ends up not working uh, to the point where ultimately it's making their life worse. And they feel more empty, more broken uh, than they did before. So one of our strategies at Sundown and one of my roles as chaplain there is to try to help people uh, find something new, something healthy, something life-giving that they can put into their lives that will replace uh, all these other things that they've attempted to fill it with. Uh, and that thing is spirituality, and spirituality not necessarily meaning God, a formal understanding of God or religion, but something that's specifically spiritual to them. I love this statement. Uh, it comes actually out of uh, conversations, actually written correspondence between Carl Jung and Bill W. And uh, without uh, reading the slide to you, but basically the un understanding is that spiritus, uh, the word for spirit, uh, like Holy Spirit sort of thing, and spirits, like alcoholic spirits, uh, it's the same Latin word. And that what we need to do as a part of a treatment program is to help replace 
an unhealthy spirit with a positive, life-giving spirit, whatever, again, that might mean. Or to quote a a 19th century theologian named Thomas Chalmers, who, who describes the expulsive effect of a new affection. The idea that we put something into our lives, fill our lives up with something new that pushes out and expels the old. And I see that as being a part of what it is that we're trying to do. It's a replacement strategy of spirituality in recovery. To put something new, life-giving, positive, spiritual into our lives that expels, pushes out the old. It's way different than simply removing substances, just getting clean or dry. It's about filling ourselves up with something new and positive. And that's much of what uh, we do in our our program at Sundown. And so I I really see, and I'm not going to go into what's on the slide, but I'm just putting it there because it might be interesting. Uh, But uh, one of the the parts of the brain we haven't talked about just yet is the limbic system, uh, which is the part of the brain that uh, we do certain things over and over again, and it creates these habits, and it becomes second nature to us. I learned how to drive a car with a, a 1966 VW Bug, okay, four on the floor, and uh, which worked fine. I figured out how to run the clutch and the brake and all that was fine. Then I got a car with an automatic transmission and occasionally, without thinking, I'd step on the brake as though it were the clutch, which is a quick stop, I just want to say. (laughs) My limbic system was saying, this is what you do. Stop sign, left foot, then right foot. Um, But what I recognized was that that needed to change. That's what we're trying to do in our spiritual program, to help people find that new thing that becomes second nature to them. Just having an individual spiritual experience here or there isn't going to do it. We have to change our brains, as has been talked about here, to have a new natural response to what's going on in our lives and to have it be something that produces a life that's happy, joyous, and free. Thank you very much. Oh, I, uh, I have a mix of a wonderful emotions when I, uh, we have a chance to get together and do this. We've done most of our work with common conference phone calls, and I'm so proud to be a part of SCATP and to have this time with you. And uh, I've already confessed I'm not humble, so I guess I won't worry. I do want to talk about uh, our own programming for Spiritual Care at Karen just briefly, and then I want to kind of pull our uh, presentation time with you uh, to a close. I know 90 minutes is a long time, and we will have a couple minutes if there is a last comment or question uh, from the group for a panelist or whatever. At at Karen, uh, through a recent uh, strategic uh, uh, re-examination of the organization, uh, one of the things I uh, I grabbed the materials with anticipation and a little bit of fear, and uh, one of the things that our strategic leadership really affirmed was our historical and continuing commitment to spirituality as a part of the recovery enterprise. And um, we really do um, uh, take pride, and I take pride in standing with these other folks in uh, professionalizing that. And I think that just like addiction treatment 
uh, psychology and addiction counseling and a variety of other things can get embarrassed by some of the practices that we see out there, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody in the room or anything, but you know, sometimes people hang a shingle and, and, uh, uh, and collect money um, in ways that don't do us proud. Uh, that's true in the spiritual care enterprise too. Um, and so uh, at Karen, we've worked really hard to try and stand alongside psychiatry, uh, addiction medicine, addiction counseling, family counseling, nutrition, and other professional disciplines, and to hold ourselves to the same kinds of standards. Individual or group supervision with video review, um, uh, formalized uh, processes for documentation, uh, uh, standards of specific kinds of training. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we, 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 we are not uh, lone rangers, and we're not uh, uh, weirdos. And, uh, uh, and we're not evangelists of our own tradition. That's a, that's a really big part of what I, I need to say about what we do. So um, at Karen, we have six and a half uh, positions um, for 220 beds at our Pennsylvania campus and positions uh, in uh, Florida and, a, a, and an ongoing commitment uh, to uh, develop and improve standards of care for spiritual care as integrated uh, components of addiction treatment that we, we think is really cool and is not unlike what's being done in other centers, but we, we feel like we do it well. Uh, one of the things that's happening at Cedar, uh, uh, which has a hospital affiliation, um, Karen is also uh, innovating around in uh, a specifically only residential addiction treatment site. Although I will say that the folks at Hazelden uh, years ago uh, at one time had an offering of clinical pastoral education for addiction treatment. This is training for people to do spiritual care for addiction. If you look at hospital standards in uh, medical surgical settings and in end-of-life care, there are JCO, which is upstairs in the exhibit hall, has standards for uh, uh, pastoral care. There's a lot of pastoral care standards. Oddly, in our industry, which is more behavioral and relational, uh, there, uh, there's been an absence of that. And so what we're doing at Karen, I suspect what's also happening at Cedar, is we're taking some of the standards for pastoral care that have been really well developed in the hospital and end-of-life setting and trying to evolve them so that uh, we can develop standards that are sensible for addiction treatment. Because it is different. The, the kind of work is different. And so if you have a great hospital chaplain, they're not necessarily going to be a great addiction chaplain right out of the gate. But... Uh, but there are things that we can learn from the huge amount of work that was done to set and establish standards across. Uh, and if our industry is moving towards greater uh, focus on behavioral health and we want to come and you know, be parity and play at the table, then uh, interestingly, oddly, uh, that means actually your organization should provide spiritual care. Because hospitals do. And hospice care does. So why isn't it I, I have to say, to me, it's, and I'm sorry to be so like, but I'm really surprised that some of our best names of treatment providers out there in the country, and you call them and they have a guy who does yoga, and that's like, that's it. And that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is coming alongside the individual in a non-faith-based, non-specific way to attend to their woundedness and to help them foster connectedness in a way that respects their culture, their religion, their traditions, and integrates with the clinical treatment team in a way that it helps make connections for faith community. So there's a huge body of work there. So we're doing that at Karen. We're really excited. We have clinical pastoral education up and running and we're uh, next year uh, in September we're going to actually be taking some interns in from seminaries and people who are going to come in and learn how to do addiction spiritual care. And 
Uh, we think it's a great way of helping. And even if we're not doing that, if you have somebody you want to hire, send them to me and I'll show them around for a couple of days and I suspect many of us would be happy. One of the things we've done is some parallel site visits. Is there's many more sick people out there than there are beds for us to treat. So my view is we don't need to fight over this. And if any of us can help you develop spiritual care programs at your site, we would be thrilled to do so. Um, what other distinctives of Karen? Um, Karen has a chapel service that has a big history. I don't know if I could see how many people have actually been to Karen Chapel, but people come uh, miles and miles and hours and hours to come to the Karen Chapel celebration. Its typical attendance is around 250. So uh, a lot of people come, and uh, I like to say it's epic. It's like a, it's like, and, but that's partly because epic is one of my things. Um, but it's a time when alumni, patients, family, and, and, and members of the staff celebrate together the restorative work. Patients do music and those sorts of things. So I guess part of what, you know, I said secret sauce is that what I am so privileged to say in our organization, and I think in the others that are represented here at the table too, is that it's not just the spiritual care staff. What's happened is that because of our presence and our long history there, we've infected the milieu with a commitment to this kind of care and to, and so we find the addiction medicine docs talking about spirituality and doing spiritual care. We do the neuroscience and spiritual lectures back to back at, at Karen, which I think is really cool. And um, so uh, if you will have us in your work, we'll, we'll, we'll infect, uh, affect, and I think uh, ultimately help um, in ways that are, that are so um, much beyond the numbers of the staff uh, uh, in contributing to the experience of, of what care looks like. My own particular uh, favorite bent to is to is just make the point, and I said it in my opening comments, but was about uh, thinking about evidence differently. There is, uh, in, in psychology, in theology, in philosophy, in, 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 in theological study, over the last 100 years, uh, a tremendous amount of attention has been paid to narrative, to people's story. And um, I guess I have a bias. I, I, you may not share it, but here's my bias. The trauma treatment is usually the, this one. I, I've, I've just been a casual observer of trauma treatment like Wolf of the Brain Science, like wanting to know about trauma treatment models. And you have EMDR and prolonged exposure and CBT and various other sort of approaches. But my story is that if you get good people <coughs> to do EMDR, you'll get better outcomes than if you get knuckleheads. That it, like, in other words, if you're going to do this with me, and I trust you and I like you, that's going to make a difference. And, and that that obfuscates the evidence-based outcomes, because it has a lot to do with leadership and implementation. And... Uh, we are a discipline helping people who are dying, and we need to do our best, and sometimes our best is to talk about the limits of what is typically thought of as evidence-based care. And there's a lot of writings, there's a lot of articles about that, but this is crap that evidence-based means that you can, you, can, you can evaluate behavioral health care programs on Likert scales and uh, 10 questions and statistical outcomes when the truth is it depends a huge amount on the human-to-human -human interaction, on the intersection of story with story, on the intersection of soul with soul and person with person. And I want to be one of the guys who stands up here and says, let's not forget about that. Let's not like sell out whole hog to 
you know, measuring who doesn't die and saying because of that that we like a treatment that keeps people intoxicated. Sorry. So, because we can help people get well. And that takes love. And the spiritual care evidence that, that, that makes our professional standing, I think, clearly be evidence-based, is that in the hall at September 11th, at St. Paul's Episcopal Church, there were hundreds of chaplains who flocked to the scene when the people died. Because the rescue workers and the families who suffered needed that care. That's evidence. That when your family member is sick, you call your rabbi or your pastor or your shaman and you think, gosh, I wish I had still had that connection in my life. That's evidence. We, 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 we have a place for a story in wisdom traditions that we remember uh, childhood songs from Hebrew school or uh, catechism or whatever it is is evidence of the way it's infected and influenced our brain and our culture. And so I plead with you to uh, not forget about the qualitative, the relational, the narrative, and the interpersonal. And to attend to those aspects and to value them. And it is very hard to uh, formalized leadership training or to, to make sure we make people who are really good at delivering the care because they know how to care. I think, and yet I think we know it when we see it and we know it when we feel it. And that, that's what I really believe is what SCATP is about. It's about trying to ensure that people are in place in addiction treatment centers who are staffed specifically to attend to quality of care in this human sense that I meant. I don't mean in uh, safety and policy but in terms of the interpersonal. So, uh, a chance if anybody has a quick question? Yes? Sure. Anybody want to bite? There's mics there. Or? Oh, go ahead, Jack. Go ahead. I, I, I think that I think that you'd find great unanimity of agreement with you that the language that's used at different times about a connection to a power greater than oneself can get in the way. And that's again, to me, I'm going to start to sing, sing the same song. That's why having people who have who are practiced in this, one of our things, and I think most of us uh, are master's level prepared practitioners, because. I've had the PhD in philosophy or linguistics or the person who was a lifelong uh, adherent to a particular tradition and then found themselves profoundly wounded by that tradition and they come in and they're like, you can't make me sit in front of a wall with a panel where the capital G God and the capital H him are there. And that needs some attention. We need to help people through that thing. So I, I agree. I, thought, I think it was a good comment. Yes. How many do spiritual assessments? We do. So. I know Lita does a formal one. We do a formal one that's narrative. There are assessment tools. I would bet 
that we, our preference is days five to seven, not days zero to five, because it takes a little time for people to be able to answer these questions. So that's our general preference, although it depends a little bit. An impaired professional may come in at a high enough level to do a spiritual assessment early. Because we, so the, I would say actually at Karen, our practice is probably between days three and seven. Is that fairly consistent? Yeah, that's consistent with us at Pavilion 2. So they go through a process. The, they they kind of go through two. So one is that they have a, um, uh, a written assessment that they go through that's done, you know, um, asking various questions about their belief and where they are in the practice. And then the other thing is they go through a personal assessment um, when they meet with me or um, even, even their counselor goes through and, and figures out where they are. The one thing that's really important about spirituality in all of us is that we're an integrative part of the whole, the whole treatment team. We're not, we're not a separate entity. So, um, so when they have that assessment, we go through, um, the counselors go through it with us, we sit down with it, we're a part of everything. Thank you, Marvin. Okay, thank you. A lot of takeaways. My favorites are, we're not weirdos, and hire good, not knuckleheads. <laughs> um, I hope you utilize these folks. We have a half an hour break upstairs. Uh, see the exhibits, get some food. Thank you to Gosnold on Cape Cod for sponsoring the break. We'll see you in half an hour for the uh, parody, insurance and parody. We go from spirituality to insurance reimbursement.